that's a good problem to have, right? So uh, that's what that's for, uh, if you're wondering. But uh, this morning, we are going to finish up our series on the Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to be looking at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We just barely got into the first one, love. And so we need to pick up the pace a little bit. And uh, we're just going to look at a couple verses for each uh, fruit of the each part of the fruit of the of the Holy Spirit, and uh, so it's going to go kind of fast, and you might find it a little difficult to keep up if you're trying to take uh, detailed notes. I apologize for that, uh, but uh, let's go before the Lord and ask for His uh, enablement this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for uh, your goodness and your kindness. To us, Lord, thank you for uh, giving us your Holy Spirit. He is the, a great gift uh, that uh, you have promised in ages past. And now, Lord, we live in this age where uh, he is living and active within the church and within each believer. And uh, what a glorious uh, reality that we at times uh, seem to forget, uh, lose sight of, and even neglect, Lord. So I pray that you would use this time uh, to show us how the Holy Spirit can operate in our lives and uh, what that would look like in our lives and that we would desire for that, uh, desire that uh, fruit of the Holy Spirit as a result of him filling us and having his way with us. Uh, Lord, uh, ultimately, this is, uh, these are just uh, descriptions of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would show us that and that you would draw us uh, to him even as we look at these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, again, we're looking at uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we looked briefly last week uh, on point one, uh, the measure of holiness. And we just kind of did a, a brief survey of Galatians of the book of Galatians, and uh, what we were doing there was just um, uh, showing that uh, instead of uh, imposing more and more law uh, to the church of Galatia, uh, Paul calls the church to uh, to, to uh, be holy by living and walking by the Spirit. Uh, it's, it's not so much law as it is uh, a relationship between us and God and our submitting to Him uh, and uh, following his, his will in our lives. Uh, the aim here is uh, to change the conduct of men from the inside out. That is, from, uh, uh, from the very soul, from the very heart of man, that, that the change would happen there. And then as a result, there would be evidence of that coming outwards. Instead of uh, what legalism does, uh, an aspect of legalism is it goes the opposite direction. It's trying to change man by just imposing law and rules and trying to get to the heart through, um, through, the, through law and through regulation. 
Christ is the healer of souls. He is the one who changes the heart. And so if that's true, then the, then the true measure of holiness that we saw last week uh, is, is found in a changed man, a changed woman. Uh, and it is found in Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is the true measure of holiness. Not uh, how many ministries you're serving in or how many rules you follow or what you wear on a Sunday morning. That isn't the measure of holiness. The measure of holiness is truly the, the fruit of the Spirit. So as a reminder, it's Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we spent essentially last week uh, trying to explain why this last phrase is there. Against such things, there is no law. Uh, law, essentially it's saying law cannot hold up uh, to what the Spirit can do. Uh, The law uh, doesn't uh, hold a candle uh, to the work of the Spirit. And so, uh, what, what is this fruit of the Spirit? So the marks of holiness is what we're looking at today. And we look briefly at love, but just a quick reminder uh, that love, to love is to have a warm regard for someone, to view them with the eyes of affection. It is to have an interest in their good, to desire and work for their well-being. And we see this in God, uh, first and foremost, uh, in verses like Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able, able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we usually go to this passage to defend uh, the preservation or perseverance of the saints. And it's true, this, this, this verse does teach that. But we usually impose, because we go to this verse for that doctrine, we usually impose uh, something on the text that isn't there. What we normally do, uh, if you're like me, uh, we, we go to this and we say, well, nothing can separate us from God or nothing can cause us to lose our salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. But the verse doesn't say that. The verse says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. So this is a passage talking about God's love more than anything else. It is a strong, infinite, um, immutable uh, love. It is a love that is unconquerable. And uh, this, of course, the love of God is primarily seen and most clearly seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. First uh, John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. That is the love of God. It's primarily seen, clear, most clearly seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what we're doing, I mentioned this last week, what we're going to be doing with each 
aspect of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is we're going to see first how this is evidenced in God and the nature and the works of God. Um, love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. We're going to see it in Him first. And then we're going to look at, well, if we are communing with God, if we have God, the Holy Spirit, living within us, this is how, this is how it's going to look as it permeates in and through our lives. So we're going to look at Him first, and then as we uh, get close to the Lord, as we get close to Christ through the Holy Spirit, these things are going to show forth, uh, because it will, uh, as it were, rub off on us. Um, but it's, it's more profound than that. So that's going to be our, our, our template uh, for each point, is we're going to see it in God, and then we're going to see it in us. So this is what we see in God, the love of God. And then love in us looks like um, passages like uh, Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. It says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Verse 39, And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. So as we see the love of God showing forth through us, it's going to uh, demonstrate itself in our love for God and our love for others. Love for God, love for others. What's striking here is that um, God doesn't just invite you to love him. He commands it. He commands your love. And only he can do this, right? Only he is of such great and infinite and perfect quality that he can demand love from others. Because in, in him, this is right. It is only right to love God. And to love anything but God uh, to love anything above God, I should say, rather. To love anything or anyone above God is sin, right? Why? Not just because he says to do, he says to do it. It's because nothing deserves love like God. Nothing is uh, so uh, deserving of our love like God is. Therefore, he can command us, love me. And Christian, this is the sweetest and most enjoyable command that you can obey. Doesn't Christ say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light? This is part of why. This is why it's an, an easy and a light load to bear uh, the commands of God. It's because oh, it's, a, it's such a sweet, fulfilling, and refreshing thing. It's such a delightful thing to love God. Don't give him that cheap passing love, Christian, that comes and goes with the change of the weather. And commit to love him through all of life and above all other things. Your love for God is not just an inward emotion either. It's seen in how you live, right? We see this in God. He, it's not just an emotion that he has towards us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent his son, right? So it comes out in action. And if you love God, by the way, you're going to hate evil. 
The more you love God, the more you hate evil. The more you hate sin. If you love Christ, you're going to love to obey him. This is a mark of the true follower of Christ. Not only love God, but love your neighbor. The second is like it. You shall love uh, your neighbor as yourself. So if you've been born again, you must love one another. 1 John 4, 7, and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I've said this before, you can't be my friend and hate my wife. Right? So it is with God. You can't say you're a friend of God, uh, but hate his bride, the church. Love must be seen. Just as you act out your love for God, you act out your love for your brethren. And uh, it's, it's clearly seen in the chapter of love, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, does not brag, is not puffed up, it does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That is how we are to love one another. And love will kill your impatience, your pride, and your harshness towards one another. After all, a loving man cannot be an angry man. It's impossible. You must love others. And, and how you love others, how it's seen, one way is by giving preference to them, caring for their needs above your own. Uh, and we're going to be looking at this in the next hour. Your love for others um, will be manifest by being ready to forgive, letting your love for them eclipse their sin. You must love others by being patient with their shortcomings, not giving up on one another so easily, but rather enduring with them in love. That is true love. Love for God, love for one another. Now, secondly, joy. Joy. Joy is the delightful experience of gladness. It is the celebration of the soul. It is the dancing of the heart. I didn't get this on my own. These are, these are a, compil- a compilation from... Um, from other men that are much smarter than I, can say it better than I can. I love that. It's the celebration of the soul, the dancing of the heart. Uh, Psalm 30, verse 11 says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. That gladness is joy. It's the soul celebrating the, the salvation and the love of God for the sinner. And as it says in Psalm 30, 11, the mourning goes to dancing. It's not just, uh, I go from mourning to just, you know, being at ease, um, being not mourning. Joy is not the absence of sadness. Joy is the presence of celebration and delight. It's the dancing of the heart. So, Where do we see this joy in God? Joy in God is seen 
in verses like Psalm 104, verse 31. Let the glory of Yahweh endure forever, yet let Yahweh be glad in his works. God is joyful when he does things. Why? Because he only does things that bring him glory, right? He is glad when his works come to fruition because they redound to his praise and his worship. Uh, we see this, for example, in Hebrews 12, 2, when Christ looked through the gospel to the, the prize of his glory in our salvation. It says in Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what helped Christ in his humanity to endure the cross? It was, it was the joy that was set before him. The joy of uh, saving a people. The joy of uh, uh, purchasing the salvation of his bride, of the elect. The joy of fully carrying out his obedience to his father. And ultimately the joy of bringing God, the triune God, glory and praise for all time. That is what enabled him and empowered him, as it were, to endure the cross. That joy that was set before him. And what's amazing is God delights and rejoices in us. Isaiah 65, 19. This is specifically to, to Israel, the people of Israel, but we are grafted into the, to the tree of Israel, aren't we? And so we can... Uh, receive the benefits of this, where God says, Isaiah 65, 19, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people. Isn't that wonderful? He rejoices. He, he is joyful in us, his people. Uh, so how is this going to show forth? Uh, what's, what's one central way that uh, the, the, the fruit of the spirit of joy will manifest itself in our lives. Well, Psalm 1611. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So what this is saying is uh, that our joy is chiefly found in God himself. He is the greatest joy. Literally, fullness here, the fullness of joy, is a word used for someone eating a huge meal and then they're satisfied, they're full, they're satiated. Uh, they're, or someone who is thirsty and they drink a, 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 you know, a huge big gulp of ice cold water on a hot day. It's that kind of feeling, that kind of response of being satisfied uh, and, and thoroughly delighted. Christian, you have to fight to have that in God. And that means that you need to starve, um, starve yourself from finding this joy, this fullness of joy in other things besides God. That's what fasting is, is to uh, wean yourself off of finding joy in things of this world 
and then retraining yourself to find joy in God. That's an aspect of fasting. Maybe you might need to do that. And ultimately, this joy is uh, crystallized in Jesus Christ, right? In, in the gospel of Christ. In the one who brought about the gospel. And we see this in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. From, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, it's not just that it was a financially sound decision uh, to sell everything and buy the field. It's joy. There was a great delight. It was easy for him to let all of his worldly possessions go if he could just have, not the field, but the treasure in the field, right? So, Christian, that is uh, your heart. That ought to be your heart for Christ. I gladly give up everything in this world if I can just have Christ. And again, fasting may be a way for you to do that, whether it's fasting from food or some luxury of your life or from some device or uh, show or form of entertainment, whatever it might be, uh, it would be good for you to consider doing that. Third, peace. Fruit of the Spirit, peace. Now, uh, what is peace? Uh, peace is the state of agreement. It is a state of agreement. That is, it's a harmonious relationship. Uh, it, it is this state of having sound or healthy relationships, a, a whole or complete connection between two parties. So this means that peace is not simply the absence of war, right? It's not simply the absence of conflict. That's not peace. When we talk about peace with one another, well, we'll get to that. It's not just that you're not arguing with people. It's that you're having harmony. And that is what we've been given in God, right? We find peace with God first and foremost uh, and we see this in passages like Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and re beyond reproach. Here, this, he's talking about peace. And it's this state of reconciliation. It's not simply that you're not this anymore. You're not just alienated and enemies and practicing evil deeds. It's not just that, but it's this full reconciliation, which is what God brings about. We are no longer far away in our relationship with God. Praise the Lord. Amen. We are no longer separated from him, but rather now near to him. He doesn't hold us at arm's length, but, but he holds us close as a father does his own child. And this, of course, is accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ was treated as being far off. He was forsaken in your place. He was forsaken so that you might be drawn near. To reconcile is to change the state of the relationship from war or enmity to peace. Uh, 
And we, and we, by the way, are always the ones that are reconciled to God. We need to be reconciled to him. He is never reconciled to us. If you'll notice the wording of the New Testament, he doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to him. And praise God that he accomplished that. We couldn't do that, but in Christ, it's done for us. So how does this bleed out? How does this refract out into our lives? Well, Ephesians 2, 17 to 22. He came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. He's talking to Gentiles far away and Jews, those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, here's what this piece looks like within the church and in your life, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you, are, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So here, what does this look like? Well, verse 19, uh, act like citizens of the same kingdom. Right? You act like citizens of the same kingdom. You, uh, you act like members of the same family, same household. Uh, you act like parts of the same temple. Right? You're a holy sanctuary unto the Lord. Act like parts of the same temple. So act like citizens of the same kingdom. That, that means that we answer to the same king. We follow the same orders. We take opportunities to serve. And you go out of your way to do something good for another Christian. You serve in your current ministry with the mindset that you're serving specific people. How does it look, what does it look like if uh, you were to act like members of the same family? Well, we have the same father. And so you enjoy the same bond of love and devotion that you have with him, you have with one another. So that means that you include one another in conversations. You include them in your day-to-day activities, regular life activities. You give them the same access of relationship as you do to other family members. What does it look like if you were to act like parts of the same temple? Well, being part of the same same temple, we are connected to each other. We are the temple of God. And much more than not being a church where people are openly fighting, we must be a church that is harmonious, unified, loving, and forgiving. A church with healthy relationships, good connections, is a place that's marked by the peace of Christ. That's what it would look like. Fourth, I think that's fourth, patience. Patience. What is patience? Well, patience is often translated slow to anger. Slow to anger, especially in the Old Testament. It is literally long-nosed. Now, the nose is closely connected to the idea of anger in the Old Testament culture. 
Think about it. When you're angry, your nose flares. When an animal becomes, becomes hostile, it scrunches its nose, doesn't it? Think of a dog. It, it scrunches its nose. It becomes short. It brings it in tight, as it were. Uh, and so, <coughs> excuse me, here, uh, in the, especially in the Old Testament, that wording is meant to communicate that you're quick to, you know, become hostile, like, a, like, a, like an animal. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, this, a similar idea comes with this visual picture. In the New Testament, the word for patience is to be far from wrath or also uh, long-tempered, depending on how you, tra- how you understand and interpret the wording there. Far from wrath or long-tempered. Well, what's, what's the opposite of patience? Well, somebody that's short-tempered, right? Well, this is saying, be, instead of being short-tempered, be long-tempered. Instead of having a short fuse, have a long fuse. That's the idea. That's what it means to be patient. Where do we see the patience, uh, this patience exhibited in God? Well, 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, for example. It's a trustworthy statement and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. And yet for this very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate what? All his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. So Paul says, you know what? I was the worst of the worst. I'm, I'm the sinner of sinners, the chief of sinners, the least among all the saints. And I'm exhibit A of the patience of Jesus Christ because I was killing his people and persecuting his bride. And yet he endured and was patient with me And finally, on that fateful day, he knocked me off of my donkey, even as I was breathing breathing murderous threats against him and his people. He he stopped me in my tracks, and he saved me. He showed me his glory. That is the patience of God. And hasn't he done that with you, Christian? Hasn't he been patient with you? Isn't this something that he, um, one of the prime qualities that he speaks of himself when he reveals himself to uh, Moses there on Mount Sinai, when it says that the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So uh, chief of his characteristics is that he is slow to anger. He is a patient God. So Christian, what this looks like in your life, be patient, be patient. He who is slow to anger, Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger has great discernment, but he who is quick-tempered raises up folly. So, uh, there's so much to say here. Um, The wise man, the one who has discernment, the wise woman, is the one who is slow to anger. You claim to be wise. You claim to have wisdom. Uh, then we should see patience in your life. If you're impatient, you're not wise. You're not as wise as as, as you think you are. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's not just that you're not wise. 
Because what's that second phrase say? He was quick-tempered, right? It doesn't say he was quick-tempered is foolish. It says raises up folly. What does that mean? You are exalting folly. You are giving credence and praise to foolishness. That's, that's the idea there. How foolish. It's one thing to be foolish and to do foolish things. It's another thing to praise foolishness, isn't it? That's a whole nother level. He says that's where you go. If you're quick-tempered, you're just, you know, it's worse, it's worse than just being an angry person. It's, it's you're praising. You're, you're throwing credit and, and, and value on foolishness or sin. And that is not what we want to do. I, I trust that that's not what you want in your life, Christian. Um, now, we got to keep going. Kindness. Kindness. Uh, the definition of kindness, um, to be short, is um, excellent or useful. This, there's a lot of um, overlap between kindness and goodness. Um, so there's going to be a little bit of overlap here. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go through these quickly. These two, because they're kind of two sides of the same coin, you could say almost. But kindness specifically is excellent or useful. It's used for a good character, someone's good character or good disposition. Um, where do we see this in God? Well, Romans 2, 4. Uh, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that the, it, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So it seems like um, this kindness of God is something that we experience. It's something that is one way. It's something that is, uh, has, carries with it the idea of grace because it's undeserving, right? He's, he's kind uh, to those who are sinful. Otherwise, why would they need forbearance or patience as well? And why would they need to repent, right? So it's somebody who is needing to repent. That person is someone who has sinned. And God, but God's response to, to our sinfulness is his kindness. Um, and that kindness of God is what draws or leads us to repentance. Um, this kindness is something that he shows to believers to believers specifically, or to those that he is drawing to himself unto salvation. Uh, his kindness here shows itself in his forbearance and his patience. Um, what a sinner needs when he sins is for God to not just suddenly lash out, right? He needs... God to forbear and be patient with him. Don't you need that each day, Christian? You need, in, in light of your sin, don't you, isn't what you need most from him, uh, well, not most, but isn't one of the chief things that you need from him, forbearance and patience? Well, God gives you what you need 
That is his kindness. That's what's most useful to you in the moment. So that's, that's the definition of kindness. Useful or excellent. And how does this show forth through us? <clears throat> Colossians 3.12. We're going to be looking at this again uh, in the next hour. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There you see it again in the context of patience as well. Uh, and the next verse, verse 13, talks about bearing with one another, forbearance. But kindness, what this would look like in your life briefly is, is that you would make it your disposition to do good to others. Be quick to be a blessing to your fellow believers. It can be a kind deed, a kind word, or just a, a kind greeting, a, a, a smile of kindness. You don't know how much those things impact those around you. This, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, the Lord wants to do this through you. He wants to uh, show his kindness to others, and he's going to do it through you. Along with that, the other side of that coin is goodness. Goodness. Now, again, there's going to be overlap. So the definition of goodness is that benefit or delight which others receive as a result of their relationship to you or to whatever is good. So there's a benefit or a delight. So both kindness and goodness uh, share in common the fact that it's beneficial to somebody. Kindness is just its own objective excellency. Goodness is more subjective delight. If I can categorize it that way. Um, this is more of the subjective goodness. It's more uh, uh, from the perspective of the person that you are being good or kind to. They see you as good. And uh, the goodness of God is, oh man, it, it, it is a truth that is so profound. Uh, it, it, in Stephen Charnock's work, The Existence and Attributes of God, he gets to the goodness of God, and it's just so many pages. I mean, he just, he just goes for quite some time, and there's many things in the goodness of God, because there's many things that we delight about him. That's, that's the point. There are many delightful things about God. Um, we see this in Hebrews 9.11. But when Christ appeared as a, great, as a high priest of the good things to come, notice that word, the good things to come, he entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. That is a loaded phrase. When Christ appeared, right, and he appeared as a high priest, but he appeared as a high priest of, and he calls it the good things to come. What are the good things to come? I mean, you can put so much, I mean, that's all of the gospel. That's all of the heavenly blessings which are yours in Christ Jesus. That's, the, that's all that you experience and enjoy in God through Christ. That is all of the uh, sufficiency and supremacy of Christ for you as a believer in your daily life. It is all of the sufficiency 
and goodness of the word of God for you as a New Testament, New Covenant believer. It is, it is all of the New Covenant. You know, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will remember your sins no more. Um, I will give you your, the Holy Spirit. I will give, change your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It's all of that. It's all of the eternal blessings that we will enjoy in heaven forever. That is, all of those things are the good things to come. Right? So this word is so much, there's so much more to it than just, oh, how was lunch? Oh, it was good. <laughs> you know, we throw that word around. Oh, it's good. So flippantly. But God doesn't do that. It's a very special word to him. Uh, these good things to come. And Christ came and he died in your place, Christian, to bring about good things for you, for the good things to come. All the things that are included in your, in your salvation. That's the goodness. And what, I, what I'm showing here is, isn't it, aren't all these things, things that you delight in, that you enjoy? Those are good things. Our, God our Father does good to us. Every good and perfect gift, right, comes down uh, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shifting shadow. Our Heavenly Father seeks out our good, always working to help us. There is no good thing that our Father withholds from us. In our hour of need, when we call on Him for help, we always find grace to help in time of need, do we not? He is the dispenser of all things that are good. So how is this going to look in us? Ephesians 2.10 we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Christian, uh, your life is to be a life full of good works, good deeds. How can you bring delight to people around you? How can you be a blessing? This means that you, that God has laid out for you. What's amazing, notice the good works are things that God has prepared beforehand. Right? So he has already laid out in your life, in his sovereignty, he has already laid out all the good things for you to do. There are so many opportunities throughout each and every day that you live that God has already placed out before you to do good. And, there, and, and it shows in, in countless ways. But all you have to do, Christian, is just walk in them. They're already there. Just, just do them. Just carry them out. Just walk. Just walk with the Lord. Walk in those good deeds. Just, just, just carry them out. They're already there throughout the day. There will be countless opportunities today to do good to your fellow Christian, especially. What are you going to do? Just walk in them. It's not hard. Just, we have to get out of our own way, don't we? This means to do that which is beneficial to another, to be helpful. Uh, this, is, this is not an attitude, but, but an action. We are called to be like our Heavenly Father in doing good to those around us. Uh, to be sons of our Father who is in heaven. Now, faithfulness. 
Faithfulness. Just a few more, and we're cutting it close. Faithfulness is reliability. It is trustworthiness. It is fidelity, commitment, loyalty. Essentially, a faithful person is someone in whom confidence can be placed. A faithful person is somebody you can place your confidence in. There's a better way to put it, probably. Uh, notice how this shows forth in the character and nature of God. Lamentations 3, 22 to 24. A sweet passage. The loving kindness of Yahweh indeed never Loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There it is. See that? The faithfulness is seen in the fact that it is there every morning. Right? Uh, it, the faithfulness is seen... It's a summary of every morning and never failing and never ceasing, right? Never ceasing, never failing, new every morning. The, the, the summation of, of those things, of that quality of God, is he's faithful. So his loving kindnesses are faithful. His compassions are faithful. His mercies are faithful. Great is his faithfulness. You see that? And what's our response to that? What's our response? Notice, therefore, I wait for him. See that? Therefore, I trust him. I place my confidence in him. God answers the unfaithfulness of his people with a fresh supply of compassion and loving kindness. Uh, he says, they are new every morning. And it, his, his faithful kindnesses and, and, and love for you, each morning Christian, is new, is new every morning, just, just like that fresh uh, morning dew that covers... Uh, your car or, or your, your lawn or your plants in the morning. So is the loving kindness of God. And how does this show forth in us? 1 Corinthians 4.2, just one example. There's a lot of New Testament calls to faithfulness, by the way. It's a major Christian quality. Uh, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. Faithful. Um, this principle is key in life and ministry. Christian, uh, you need to be faithful in the little things. Uh, you need to be faithful with the lowly task. And don't expect to be rewarded with more responsibility like teaching or leading a ministry or discipling somebody. Don't expect to be given more responsibility in the church if you're not faithful with the little things. And just because we're a small church doesn't mean that we're clamoring for everybody's help and we'll just take whatever we can get. 
especially when it comes to those areas of ministry that are that carry with them a higher stewardship, higher responsibility. You need to be faithful in the little things. You need to be faithful Monday through Saturday to do what's expected of you so that you're ready to serve on Sunday. Um, when you say to somebody, somebody yes or no, you need to mean it. 2 Corinthians 1.18 uh, Your word needs to be not yes and no, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, it says. You need to be somebody that is a man or a woman of your word. If you say something, you do it. You shouldn't have to be coddled or babied or reminded. It's your responsibility. If you make a commitment, do it. And leaders of ministries, uh, remember this is equipping hour, so this is to help you to do the work of ministry. So if you're leading a ministry, don't reward unfaithfulness. Don't reward uh, slothfulness in your ministry with more responsibility. Don't make that man or woman more, uh, uh, you know, your apprentice or your number two in line in the ministry or don't make them, uh, don't give them more responsibility. Uh, Now we are thankful for them to serve. But teach? No, no. If they can't be faithful in the little things, uh, they, they are not going to be faithful in the, in the big things like teaching or discipling or leading. So you need to be thinking about those things. Uh, gentleness, we need to keep going. I got a lot on my heart this morning, you can tell. Uh, gentleness. Gentleness is, I like this definition, uh, it's not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. <laughs> you're, not, you're not impressed with yourself, right? Uh, of course, that, that's closely tied with humility. Um, and in Scripture, it is often coupled with humility in various passages, as we'll see. Um, and you can see it, 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 it's translated and understood as humility, courtesy, considerateness, or meekness is maybe a, an old word that we associate with gentleness. Now we see this, of course, in Christ, in God, in Christ, uh, when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle. Gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, gentleness is, when it's used for things, it's, it's mild. Or when it's used for animals, it's tame. Uh, when used for people, it is gentle, humble, courteous, meek. Uh, early church fathers placed gentleness as the direct opposite of arrogance and stubbornness and rudeness. So sometimes to know what something is, it's helpful to know what it's not. Well, it's, it's the opposite of arrogance, stubbornness, and rudeness. That's what gentleness is. Christ describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. This is his heart. This is what comes most naturally from him. Um, 
The gentleness of Jesus is what sweetly calls the weary sinner to himself. The gentleness, this gentleness is what, is what causes the victorious king to grant rest to those who were once his enemies. Remember who he's calling his enemies to himself. So how gentle and meek it is to call to your mortal enemy, come to me and I'll, find you re- I'll give you rest. You don't have to war with me anymore. I'll give you peace and rest of soul. Oh, that's so kind and gentle of our Lord, isn't it? Uh, and what does it look like in us? Well, it's the same passage, really. Because uh, he says, take my yoke and learn from me. Learn from me. What do I learn from Jesus? Gentleness and humility, Right? Learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. You have, you have much to benefit from learning from me because of what I am, which is gentle and humble in heart. So we are called into that same attitude of humility and gentleness. It is only when you too become humble and gentle that you will find rest, Christian. Uh, And it is only when you too become humble and gentle that the yoke is going to be easy and the burden is light, by the way. Um, All right. Uh, Self-control. We're not doing too bad. Self-control. Self-control is self-governing, right? Self-governing. It is the idea to restrain, to limit, control, restrict, uh, to subdue your desires, cravings, or impulses, emotions, or passions. Uh, So this self-restraint, self-limiting, self-subjugation, self-governing, this is what's required. This is so essential. Uh, we see this, uh, and we often think of, for us, we're restraining our sin, and that's usually what it is. But we do see this in God, not that he restrains his sin, but that he restrains his wrath. Uh, Isaiah 48, 9. For the sake of my name, I delay my anger, and for my praise, I what? Restrain it for you. I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. So what's profound is we ought to be self-restraining because, you know, essentially almost, almost all the time, we can say all the time, maybe 0.01% of the time where we, have, we, we uh, restrain what is good in us, but usually it's we're restraining what's bad, what's, what's wrong and sinful, sinful in us, right? That's, that's, that's the vast majority of the, of the situation. So we ought to be self-restraining because we want to hold back what is bad. It just makes sense. But with God, he, what he holds back here in this passage is not what is evil. It's not what is bad. It's actually what is right and deserving and, 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 and the proper response. He should 
he should consume sinners in his anger. But yet, because of his name, for his namesake, because he's made a covenant with his people, and he is, a, he is a, not a man of his word, a God of his word, right? Because he is faithful to his covenant and faithful to his own glory, he says, even what is good I'll restrain. I will restrain my wrath and my anger. And he does it so that he gets glory. He does it so that he will get glory. But for us, we restrain all that is foolish and folly within us. First uh, Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. There's our word. They then do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. Or incorruptible. So what do we do? We what? We exercise self-control. That's what goes into this section. We exercise self-control in all things for or in order to receive an incorruptible crown. He says, therefore, run, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body, make it my slave. That's self-control. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. To practice self-control, Christian, is to confine yourself to the limits that God has given to you in the Bible in order to protect yourself and others from sinful harm and, and in order to honor Christ as your master. It is saying no when you should say no. It is moderation in those, le- in those legitimate desires and activities. Just because something is lawful, what does he say? I will not be governed by it. I will not be controlled by it. I will control myself. Right? It is, and it is absolute restraint in areas that are clearly sinful. So the things that you can or may do doesn't mean you can do them to excess. Self-control says I will do them but in moderation. And self-control also says those things that, I, that God says I must not do and ought not do, I, I shall not. I, not even in moderation. Yes, in the back. Question. Isn't the example you gave, isn't God's self-control more mercy than self-control? Uh, so the, yeah, yeah. So his uh, mercy, uh, the question is, isn't God restraining his wrath more of his mercy than his self-control. It's both. It's a demonstration of his mercy. The classical definition of mercy is God restraining or withholding that which we deserve. So according to that classical definition, yes. Because God's grace is giving what we don't deserve. His mercy is withholding what we do deserve, right? Uh, and so, yes, it, it falls in that category. But he uses the word, I restrain I restrain. So it, it is the word for self-restraint, for self-control. 
he restrains his, his wrath. You could say he, he restrains his wrath in his mercy, something like that. So yeah, it is very closely connected. Absolutely. And uh, in, in us, you know, it, it's not usually good things that we restrain ourselves in. It's, it's the sinfulness. Uh, Romans 8.13, If you are living according to the flesh, you mustn't die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. So be putting to death the practices of the body. Have self-control, self-restraint, dear Christian. All right, these are the, this is the fruit of the Spirit. And I trust that as you see, what you're seeing is, I see these things in God and Christ. And I am so delighting and enjoying and benefiting from these things I see in Christ. And so uh, 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 exposing myself to these good qualities of God in Christ. That what happens is, like Moses, when I am in his presence and, and, and taking in his glory, when I leave and go out into the world, it, it, I shine, as it were, right? There, there's a, there's, that's analogous to, to what we're talking about. As you are enjoying the things of God and uh, being close to him, walking with God, uh, the, the, the hope and the intent for you, Christian, is that you begin to act like him. And this, these are how those, these things are going to show through in your life in the fruit of the Spirit. All right, uh, just a quick reminder. Next week, we do not have any equipping hour. No equipping hour next week. We'll take a quick break because uh, the following week after that, we're going to have our disciplers uh, training. So if you're discipling somebody or if you're leading or teaching in a ministry, uh, or if you are desire to disciple somebody, please make it a, a, a special point to be here uh, two weeks from now. I don't know the exact date, but not next Sunday, but the Sunday following. Uh, and uh, we'll have a, a training especially designed for you that day to encourage you in, in that work of discipleship and teaching the Word of God. Uh, following that... Uh, the week after. So I think that we're into the last week of November, uh, somewhere there about, I think it's the last week of November. Uh, we're going to start a new series, and it's going to be Delighting in Christ. Delighting in Christ. We're going to look at all the things that are delightful, or remember our, our word, good, about God in Christ. All those things that are enjoyable. We're just going to take some time and end off the year just just soaking in that you know i i think um this last part of the year becomes stressful and becomes a bit much for us and it's usually also a a, a season of uh, emotional and spiritual difficulty in many people's lives uh and so i want to minister to you brothers and sisters and uh just set your eyes on christ and and allow for these this hour uh, just to be a time of refreshment for you it's been a long and hard year, hasn't it? So we need to just kind of take a breather. And, I, and that's my aim for, for the rest of this year. All right? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, teaching us and training us according to your word. I pray, Lord, that we, as we uh, commune with you and delight in you and draw near to you, O oh God, that that would 
show that you would, uh, your qualities that we so delight in you would begin to change us and we would be more and more like you, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, may, may we be known by your character and your qualities. May people see Christ in us. And may you receive glory as a result. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 You're dismissed.